The reading for today's sermon comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, not Groundhog Day, but the same reading as last week, and sorry, two weeks ago, and the same reading we'll have next week as well, Lord willing, as we examine this really remarkable and quite sharp section of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. Chapter 3, from verse 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idled when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the God of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way that I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, open our eyes that we may see glorious things in your word. So speak that these spirit-breathed words before us today may come alive again and grasp us and shape us that just as you spoke to create all things in the beginning, so you might speak again to recreate new, faithful, Christ-like life in us now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. In the early 2000s, my wife and I, Nicole and I, along with Ben, who at that time was about this big, had the privilege of visiting some friends in South Africa. They were missionaries, wonderful people. We met some amazing people out there, a whole range of different uh, communities. My friend was planting two churches, one in a fairly wealthy part of a little town called Belito, and one specifically intended to reach out to Zulu men who, and Corsa men who would work in various jobs in the neighborhood. And we saw that remarkable work of God. And, but as we, we spent a, a couple of weeks there before we you know, visited some other people, and one thing that stood out was that people were clearly struggling economically this was about 2004 uh, when 
South Africa had just been through seven years of prolonged recession. From 95 to 2002, the economy shrank by about 25%. That's almost as much as the Great Depression. In 29 to 33, the economy in the US shrank by 29%. Unemployment in South Africa at that time peaked at about 33% of the working population. That's actually higher than the Great Depression was here at its peak. By the early 1990s, less than 8% of new entrants into the workforce could find a job. And that just got worse as the decade progressed. So just think you're graduating class, you and 19 other people, maybe there's 20 of you. Like one of you gets a job, maybe two. And I remember one brief moment that captures the feeling of despair that descended on many people who were able and qualified. We, we went to a grocery store and with us was a friend of the family that we were staying with, Christian man in his early 20s. He was a graduate, a university graduate, very sharp, interesting, thoughtful guy, very capable, uh, but no job. He didn't have a job. And we're approaching the checkout. And this was in the days before those kind of self-serve electronic checkouts. And there was this young lady, probably, I think maybe 18 or 19, who was scanning all the items with a little clink, clink, and putting them in the bag. And we approached the checkout and he said, I'd love to have that job. And we both knew that because of the economic and political situation, he had no chance of getting a job like that or any other. He would have loved to have any job at all. At the most basic level, he was unable to provide for himself. Uh, vast acres of his time were just empty. I mean, there's only so much time you can actually spend applying for jobs if there's so few available. It really was a, a terrible, terrible time. And you kind of caught this spirit of people trying not to descend into hopelessness and aimlessness as they were just unable to find work in an economy that was so badly broken. And I wonder what that young man would have said if I had reminded him at that point of the scenario that is painted for us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in the text we've just read. Just a quick reminder, I know a number of you are here for the first time today, and, but a reminder for all of us um, 2 Thessalonians is a broadly very encouraging letter. It was written shortly after the founding of the church. Paul and his companions founded the church in the early 50s on his second missionary journey. And a, a few months later, really, as he's continuing on his journey, he writes two letters to them, having heard a bit of news back and forth in between each of them. This is the second of those letters. And it's a basically an encouraging, it's correcting some misunderstandings in chapter 2. But it's basically, he's, if you look at chapter 1, he's, he clearly thinks very highly of these young brothers and sisters in Christ. But there is one critique, one moment when he says, oh, hold on a second. And it is in the passage you've just read, and it is remarkably forceful. Look at verse 6. If you've got your Bibles, I'd appreciate it if you're, if you're able to open them up again. Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, and he summons all of the authority he has, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. You see, the situation is not like South Africa at the turn of the 21st century where there's no work available. There is plenty of work available in first century Thessalonica. And there are some people who are not willing to do it. They're walking in idleness. Verse 10. Paul reminds the congregation that when he was with them, they commanded... If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And why? Well, they've heard, verse 11, that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command 
and encouraging the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. And I remarked a couple of weeks ago when we looked at this passage for the first time, this, in terms of rhetorical forcefulness, is the equal of anything you get in the rebukes to the Galatians or the Corinthian church where Paul really had to give them a slap to wake them up. Really quite shocking when you see it in that context. And I imagine a young South African friend who would desperately have loved to have a job which, I mean, it's, it's a job. I mean, it, just, it, it might not be intrinsically very interesting, but it's a job that you could do well. I imagine him in utter disbelief, uncomprehending that there might be anywhere in the, the whole history of the Christian church people who could work but can't be bothered to do so because he was so grieved by the fact that he was just unable to find work. There are some people who refuse to embrace this privilege. I think he would be outraged, quite possibly. And actually, he'd be quite right, because it's obvious from this passage and from other considerations we may reflect on later that to refuse to work when you should and could is actually a matter of serious ungodliness. It's probably not something we think about very much. That may be a feature of the economic productivity that we enjoy, which makes various forms of non-working not lead to starvation so quickly. Um, But Paul is clearly serious. Like, look, verse 10. The the Thessalonians are clearly very soft-hearted. We actually know that the Macedonians, and Thessalonica is part of that region of Macedonia, were very generous. Paul remarks on their generosity when he's trying to encourage the Corinthians to give more generously to alleviate the famine in Jerusalem in 2 Corinthians 8. But here he's saying, look, there are some people who, who should be starving. And they're among you. And they're the people who won't work. And so he's got this very effective method to try and get them back into the workplace. Um, we remember, I, I mentioned last time, that the, um, the sanction is probably not excommunication, Uh, There are various features, particularly um, verse 15, don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The reason it's not excommunication, though it could lead to that, is that um, it's going to be effective. Like, if you stop feeding the guy, you won't go and show up on the building site at six in the morning to work. You stop feeding him, pretty soon he'll wake up and stop doing whatever it is he's doing instead of working. Now, I want to clarify, I... There is, a, there is a temptation for preachers to imagine that their congregations are guilty of all the sins of all the different churches in the New Testament. You know? And that's just not true, right? You're, whatever is going on, we're not as bad as all of them put together. I don't actually think that it's a widespread problem that we have exactly this going on in the congregation here. Not to my knowledge. I mean, it's, it's possible uh, that there are one or two folks for whom... This is like just a direct rebuke. Like you're lazy, you're idle, get up and do something. I think though that there are connections between this uh, exhortation and other pastoral issues, which we have a huge amount to learn from. We may have some temptations, certainly in the direction of inactivity, partly because of our economic prosperity. Maybe we'll come to that in a few minutes. Um, We certainly are prone to broader misunderstandings about the nature of work, and particularly towards the end today, I want to talk to young people about how you go about approaching the task of preparing for work. But I still think, either way, whatever the particular issues, what Paul says here has the potential to be very fruitful for us, and there are basically two intertwined strands to what he says. The first is this. 
There's two, basically two reasons to work. The second, I'll come to in a second, it's, it's work so that you can provide for yourself. But here, there's an additional reason. Firstly, work so that you don't become an idle busybody. Paul is very blunt about this. Look with me at verse 6. This is the danger that he wants to warn us against. It's a reason for working. Verse 6, jump in. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us. See, Paul has done it himself. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day so that we might not be a burden to you. The, the verb translated idleness is used elsewhere of military desertion. It's very interesting. It, it suggests somebody's abandoning responsibilities that they should be embracing. And they're just kind of getting into trouble and actually causing problems for everybody else. And, so, and notice also, um, this is about a lifestyle. It's walking in idleness. I remarked on this a couple of weeks ago. This is not about somebody who's having a Saturday off. It's not about somebody who is elderly and infirm and unable to work to provide for themselves. This is about somebody who could work and should work, but has adopted a lifestyle of idleness. Idleness is a way of life, walking in idleness, and therefore being dependent on other people. And that's what leads to the, the sanction in verse 10. Um, verse 11 has got more detail about the precise situation. We hear that some among you Walk in idleness, and this is wonderful. The ESV actually does a great job of capturing the Greek wordplay here. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so you see a bit more texture about what exactly is going on. Instead of working productively and actually getting on with something that could earn enough money for them to provide for themselves, these people are gossiping and getting involved in everyone else's business. There's no productive work going on. One commentator writes, they're minding everyone's business except their own. Not busy at work, but busybodies. And the, we, the same wordplay works really well in English. One old commentator, William Neal, summarizes Paul's exhortation. Stop fussing, stop idling, stop sponging. I love those, those old commentators are great. They don't get lost in all the footnotes. They just say it like it is. And so Paul says, look, you want to work so that you don't become idle because you'll become a busybody. First exhortation. Now, just a couple of details which take us into some significant practical applications of this. First is, I want to make a comment on one possible cause for this attitude in Thessalonica, which may illuminate our situation a little bit. It's likely that there's some kind of connection between this sort of subgroup of idlers in the congregation and the misunderstandings that Paul has had to address about eschatology earlier in the letter. Uh, we know this because actually Paul more or less says so in chapter 2. In chapter 2 is, is the section where he's addressing these eschatological confusions. We'll come to that in a second. But chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, notice what he says. It's very intriguing if you just look closely. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is clearly some eschatological something or other, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So it seems, that most commentators seem to think that, that what, what's going on here is that people have got so wrapped up in these eschatological expectations that they're being distracted from their work. Now, at this point, there's a bit of a debate among scholars on this passage because many think that the misunderstanding that they had was that the final judgment day is just around the corner. 
The day of the Lord, the great day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, the general resurrection is literally, it could be weeks away. And so, well, what's the point in working if, like, it's all going to burn, right? At least that's the rationale that is imputed sometimes to, by some commentators to the Thessalonians. Now, if you remember, those of you who were here when, we, when I went through chapter 2, I don't think that's actually what's going on. I don't think that's the misunderstanding that the Thessalonians had. I don't think that that's the misunderstanding that Paul's addressing. I mean, and just to take one point, I mean, in verse 2, if, if they were really expecting the general resurrection, would Paul have to warn them not to be shaken by a letter explaining that it had already happened? I mean, like, you'd have to be really confused in your eschatology, right, to imagine that you, the, the general resurrection might have happened because this letter says so. It's like, come on, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. It's possible. I mean, like when, it, when it comes to eschatology, people get really, really confused, right? So it is, it is conceivable, okay, I'll grant that, but it, that doesn't seem to be the misunderstanding that Paul is addressing here. The misunderstanding that he's addressing is not concerning the final great last judgment, which would mean let's not bother to work because we're going to be resurrected shortly. The misunderstanding concerns the impending day of judgment or day of the Lord where the Lord Jesus will act through the swirl of political toing and froing in the ancient Near East to bring judgment upon the old covenant people of Israel with the destruction of their temple and the sacrificial system and everything that went along with it. Remember we talked about that, it happened in 70 AD, a decade and a half or so after this took place. And it seems to me much more likely that what's going on in the in the congregation in Thessalonica, it's not like we're expecting the end of the world. What we're expecting is some massive political upheaval. And we know from ancient sources, people like Josephus and other writers in the first century, that um, there were huge political effects of the overthrow of Jerusalem across the whole Greek and Roman worlds. We know that that took place. And it looks like that's the kind of thing that is distracting them from their work. In other words, it's not like... Um, Judgment Day might be next week and I'll be raised bodily and so there's no point in working. It's rather that we're so preoccupied with the unfolding of contemporary social and political events that we're just wrapped up in endless speculation. I, I, it's much more fun to discuss eschatology late into the night than it is to get up first thing in the morning and go to work right? And it's perfectly possible to do that if you've got other people providing for you. Illustration. This isn't an exact illustration, but this will give you a sense of, of um, what I'm talking about. Uh, hands up if you're old enough to remember Y2K. Remember the Y2K computer, yeah, right? Uh, when did all the people born since 2000 like, what? It's like, basically, in the, the years leading up to the year 2000, lots and lots of people were worried that computers would all stop working because they only, the, the clock chips in them only had two digits. So they get to 99 and then they'd go click round to zero, zero and it would be like 1900 again and therefore aeroplanes would fall out of the sky and various other terrible things would happen. And what's interesting, you, you did get among Christians, you got a couple of reactions. You, among um, dispensationalist-minded Christians, some people genuinely did think that 2000 would be the end of the space-time universe and, and so on and so forth, because obviously that's what it says in the Bible. Um, but there was actually a reformed 
bad reaction as well. Which wasn't like the end of the world is nigh. It's, well, we need to stockpile 25 years' worth of dried food and lots of fresh drinking water, probably quite a lot of firearms and some gold, and get ready to drive off into rural Montana when everything collapses. There were some quite famous Christian social commentators who were eating quite a lot of humble pie on January the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and so on and so forth. Some of you remember that. Now, what's actually happened there? Notice what's happened is that people have got so wrapped up in contemporary social and political this, that, and the other that they've basically abandoned their day-to-day responsibilities because of an eschatological misunderstanding. And it was very widely... People got wrapped up in it in large numbers. And I wonder, I wonder whether this is one of the ways in which... So I, I don't think you guys are all going to be really, really confused that Resurrection Day might be tomorrow. But is it not possible that sometimes our understandable concern with and questions about contemporary political events functions to distract us from what we ought to be doing? Like, what's Elon going to tweet next? Like, what about AI? Like every podcast I listen to at the moment seems to be all about artificial intelligence. It's just, I don't, you know, I used to be a scientist. It's kind of interesting to me. But there are some highly apocalyptic predictions which are almost like kind of a slightly uh, moderated form of Terminator movie kind of futures unfold. And I, I kind of want to say, well, so, so what ought you to be doing tomorrow morning? And I want to start a blog because, because there might be some people who don't know what to do. No, go to work. Because you have a family to raise and to provide for. And it's amazing, actually, if you think about it, that the, um, it is apparently possible for those kinds of concerns about what Jesus might be at work doing in the contemporary political and social worlds to so overwhelm people's sanity that they need to be told, look, if you're not going to go and get a job, we're not feeding you. Not anymore. There may even be a broader pastoral issue at play. In, in Thessalonica, we know from the book of Acts that the church was fairly uh, marginalized from an early stage in its life. And what happens to a, a Christian community when it's kind of marginalized by people around is that they tend to become, the relationships within sometimes are strengthened. Right? If, if, if you feel yourselves to be somewhat embattled in relation to the broader secular culture of Fort Worth or Texas, the United States, it might encourage you to, to really be quite dependent on one another in your relationships. Does it sound familiar? Which is good, right? But you see what that can produce. It can produce a ripe kind of fertile breeding ground for gossiping and just idle chatter about what she said and what he's doing and have you heard about what they're doing with their homeschooling and have you heard about did you see what they said and it's like really i think that may be more of a danger to us and in that sense therefore we may be closer to thessalonica than we might have realized of course the problem with the thessalonians response is it's exacerbating the problem there are some kind and gracious, soft-hearted Thessalonian believers who just can't bear to impose the pain of created reality landing at the empty plate of the guy who won't get up in the morning and go and do a job. And Paul says, listen, that, 
you've got to stop. If you think about it, this is, it's, it's a little bit like um, disciplining a child. So what, what's happening when you, when you raise a child? Um, children do all kinds of harebrained things, and, and normally they don't get themselves into too much trouble, um, not intrinsically, but if you, want to, if you want to discipline them so they don't throw the oatmeal at the ceiling every time you put it in front of them in the morning. But what you do is you artificially impose negative consequences on them. So it's like, if I throw my oatmeal at the ceiling, I get a spanking. Well, that spanking was painful, so I won't throw the oatmeal at the ceiling. You know, it's kind of, and what's actually happening there is we're mirroring created reality. The way that creation normally works for responsible adults is if you do dumb things, bad things happen to you. That's what the book of Proverbs says. And so as a parent, you want to protect your children from the intrinsic negative consequences in the future by imposing extrinsic negative ones now. Like make it painful to throw your breakfast cereal all over the place. Well, what's happened here is that these people who are presumably older, presumably adults who ought to be working, have been protected from those intrinsic built-in creational consequences of idleness by well-meaning Christians who can't bear to make life painful for them for 24 hours so they wake up and smell the coffee or smell the not coffee. And it's just intriguing. I, I, like I said, I, as I was thinking about preparing uh, this sermon, I, I didn't look around and think, my goodness, we have this plague of 18 to 35-year-olds who are doing nothing. I don't, I, that's not the problem that I saw. But it does raise the question, doesn't it? It raises questions for parents about how would you just apply the right kind of incentives, let's say, in the right kind of way, so that one or two parents are like smiling incentives. Yeah, we know what you're talking about, Pastor Jeffrey. Um, like, what, type, what kind of stage are you going to start charging rent to your kids? There's an example. Because if you don't, you're removing one of the natural built-in incentives for them to be productive. Yeah? Sorry, son. <laughs> like, he's like, what? You announced that in a sermon? Seriously? Yeah. Sorry. It's terrible being a preacher's kid. Um, but I mean, so what you could do is say, look, we're going to charge you rent. We're going to put it in a savings account for you. But you're not having rent free. Yeah? Because what we're trying to do is to structure your life so that you experience some of the natural and God-given pressures towards you've actually got to provide for yourself at some point. We'll come to that in a few minutes and talk about some other details with that. So that's the first aspect of this. You work so that you're not idle. Cursed with idleness. Second, the prosaic and obvious and extremely important principle that we need to work so that we can provide financially and materially for ourselves and our family and others who are dependent upon us. This is clearly underlying um, Paul's exhortations. In verse 12, he makes it explicit. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly. See the hint of what they're doing, gossipy stuff at the rest of the time. Do their work quietly, earn their own living, literally eat their own bread, allusion to Genesis 3. Yeah? By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And this is an allusion to that. It's a good thing. Now, let's explore this a little bit more because there's a bunch of things that we rarely talk about, and we probably should, because they're Christian virtues and theological themes of some significant importance. First, have you considered the tremendous God-given privilege and dignity of working? 
So just think about what you know of the creation narrative. You know, God made all things in six days, called it good, and then he rested the seventh day. And we are to imitate him. It's part of what being in the image of God means. It's the rationale for the fourth commandment in Exodus, remember? Um, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, none of your servants, sons, daughters, livestock. Because in six days God made the earth, the heavens, and all the things that are in them, and on the seventh day he rested. So we're imitating God. It is a profoundly dignified privilege. We, we get to do the stuff that God does. The, the so-called creation mandate in Genesis 1 to fill and subdue and have dominion over the world is a, a call to do what God does. God fills the world with beautiful things. God brings out the latent goodness that's in created things. And now he gives us the opportunity to be like him. And we, uh, commentators on Genesis frequently talk about us ruling as God's vicegerents. It's a technical term, which means that um, we're ruling, so to speak, in God's name while he is present in heaven and it's through us that God does his work. And in Genesis 3, it continues. Okay, now it's painful. By the sweat of your face, you will eat your bread. In pain, you will bring forth children. But it's still, it's not that God says, well, that worked for me. That clearly didn't work. Let's think of something else. No, it, it's, it's preserved and given. as You have this astounding dignity of eating your own bread. We dig a bit deeper theologically. What we, what we get to do is to echo the divine attribute of aseity. Hands up if you heard the term aseity. Some of you theologians have. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Aseity means from himselfness. So ase means from himself. God is ase. God possesses aseity. What that means is, it's like what God said to uh, Moses in Exodus 3. What's your name? It's like, I am. Go and tell him that I am has sent me to you. It's God is the cause of all his being. There's nothing outside of God that gives rise to God. Where does God come from? He doesn't come from nowhere. That's a mistake, because then what happens is you give to nowhereness a kind of ontological priority over God. What we say is that God is from himself. God is the cause of his own being and his own actions. He brings and keeps himself in being as the Father begetting the Son, and the Father and the Son breathing out the Spirit, and the Spirit receiving his being from the Son, and the Son being begotten by the Father in the Spirit. That God is this self-caused whirlwind of pure, infinite being. He brings himself into being, and you get to do the same. Well, not quite the same. You get to do a kind of created echo of that. You get to get up in the morning, and you go, go out to work, and then what you eat is, to some degree, a fruit of what you have done. Actually, there's a bigger theme behind this, that all of God's attributes are reflected in some shadowy way in all of creation. God's wisdom, God's righteousness, God's wrath, God's beauty, God's holiness, they're all echoed in creation. And the task of theology, among other things, is to figure out how. And when we work to put bread on our tables, what we're doing is, well, God is graciously giving us the capacity, so it's, this is how we're different from God. God gives to us the capacity to sustain our being. It is an astonishing privilege that we get to do this. 
It is a tremendous blessing that you get to go out to work and provide for your family. Or you get to work to raise your family. Or that you get to work to prepare to raise or to provide for your family. God didn't have to arrange it in this way. He could have had us like bodies in vats, like sort of matrix-like being infused with enough whatever hormones and drugs it would take to make us happy. No, he's given us the privilege of finding joy in what he does. Working. My father is at work even till now, Jesus said. And we get to do the same. So, it gives us, like a foundational level, it gives a direction and shape to human life. From one perspective, all of life is about work. Now, obviously, all of life is about other things. All of life is about relationship. All of life is about love, and so on and so forth. There are many different angles on life. We're perspectivalists, yeah? We can look at things from different angles. But all of life is about work. Of one kind. I don't mean now necessarily paid employment, although for many of you it will be. What I mean is what we give ourselves to in the service of others within the creation to bring out of the created order all the goodness that God's put in it. And so practically, so we start now becoming more practical. Um, think about marriage. If, you, if you're married, which is a blessing, it's a creational gift. Um, you're a husband. You get to provide, not just for yourself, but for others as well. That makes you, you're even more closely echoing now yet another aspect of God's being, where he provides not just for his own being, but for the being of all things. It is a tremendous dignity and privilege to do that. And if you're a mother, obviously you're doing the work which is the most valuable of all and the least valued by the secular world. Um, But you're still working. I understand that raising children is quite difficult. I mean, yes, right? We, we, and it's what we're doing is giving ourselves to other people in this way of echoing what God has made us to be. So the world will one day be filled with people who are little image bearers of God, filled with image bearers of God, working in a way that provides this faint but intensifying echo of how God works by giving himself to others to provide their being. And we get to do that for others. Some implications, just a few minutes before we conclude. If it's not yet obvious, let me say a massive word of encouragement to those of you who are working. And I'm now thinking of um, paid employment, uh, working in the home, adults, um, God be praised. Like it's, a, it's a really good thing. I want, to, I want to encourage you in it. I especially want to encourage you when you take on something extra, when you push yourself, when you do what's hard rather than what's easy. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. In pain, you will bring forth children. You know, Jesus did his best work when he was most exhausted. Have you ever thought of that? By the sweat of his face, like great drops of blood falling on the ground. Jesus is a worker. And at the point where he was most utterly shattered, some of you think you've been tired. It always makes you smile when teenagers say they've been tired. Like, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I know some of you have. It's okay. But, but um, 
when you're most completely exhausted and most completely overwhelmed, you are most Christ-like in your working. Because isn't that how Christ does the most possible good? If you had to isolate one moment of Christ's working life and point to the most productive, wouldn't you, wouldn't you point to the moment of the greatest pain? Fifteen ladies in this congregation and associated with this congregation are going to be going through some serious pain as they bring forth children. Christ-likely. How many men in this congregation, and ladies for that matter as well, the, the fearsomely hard grind of just trying to do your job as well as you can. God be praised for Christ-like workers. A brief note on, uh, there's so much more, we'll talk about some of this in forum if you want to uh, join me after worship down there, do, do that. But let me just sow some seeds of things we could talk about. One of the things that really makes a mess of us is the historical context that we've come from of which we're unaware. Um, if, you, if you want a shock, okay, um, try and find a, a chart that represents global GDP per capita by year for the last 2,000 years. I found one, actually. It's an amazing piece of work. And basically, it's flat. So human productivity is basically static until the Industrial Revolution, where it, I'll do it your way around. So Industrial Revolution, it sort of blips up a bit like this, and it kind of wobbles. You've got a couple of world wars. You know, 1960, it goes like hockey stick shaped. It goes absolutely ballistic. Basically, in the last three generations, the world has become prodigiously more productive, and we have become prodigiously more wealthy, which means we have a very, very limited set of horizons and we tend to make mistakes because we're in circumstances which, to which human beings are unaccustomed. Think, like 300 generations since Adam, for 297 of those generations, if I went to a young person and said, okay, what are you going to, have you thought about what you're going to do as a vocation? What would have entered your head would be, okay, what can I do to stay alive? For the last three generations, if I now go to a young person and say, so what are you going to do as a vocation? They ask questions like, oh, what, do I, what am I inspired by? What are my passions? What do I enjoy? What do I like? It's like, what? <laughs> like, and now I'm not saying we should go back to the medieval period where we spend half of winter asleep, huddled together trying to stay warm and the other half of the year desperately trying to scrape enough corn together to not starve to death. I'm merely pointing out that we're in a very weird position and it's not always obvious to me that we approach the basic questions very well. To oversimplify, and this probably is an oversimplification, but only just, we completely short-circuit, in some cases, the how will I earn money question because we take it for granted. Right? How many of you young people have ever seriously contemplated the possibility that you might just starve? Right? I mean, it's just... You, you, you think, well, what will I do for a living, and how do I progress in the world? But it doesn't, it never enters your head that you might actually die of starvation, which was a major worry for about half the people who've ever lived. And so what happens is, we make all kinds of choices about vocations, which sometimes omit the basic necessity of financial provision. Let me give you the most graphic illustration I can think of. And I, I, I think, not, not graphic, but just ho hopefully sharp enough to prompt some thoughts. Imagine you're having a conversation at coffee time today uh, with three young high school graduates or college graduates. Say, what are you planning to do? And one of them says, well, I've, I'm really excited. I've, I'm going to be doing some voluntary work 
going on a mission trip, I'm doing some voluntary work, then back in, in Fort Worth, going to be working for three years uh, with uh, homeless people. Second person, so what are you planning to do? Well, I'm, I'm really passionate about handcrafted seat cushions, little, little, and I'm hand-embroidered, and I really love making them, and, it, it, and, and so I'm planning to set up a website and go into business selling hand-embroidered hand seat cushions. And you turn to the third person and say, what are you planning to do? And he says, well, I figure with my qualifications and my kind of gifts, I'm kind of middling academically, but I reckon I, uh, I'm planning to go and become a blockchain developer or an IT developer or work in finance because I figure that's the way I can make the most possible money as fast as possible. And you look at those three people. Now, here's what's fascinating. Of the three, I reckon we will be most concerned about the motives of the third. Would we not? Because you'd think, you know, money is dangerous, motivation, you want to be rich. Because there is danger in that. But let me tell you, there is also danger in the kind of short-sightedness that considers pure voluntary work. Good grief. Are we seriously listening to a pastor telling us that voluntary work is bad? No. What I'm telling you is that voluntary work doesn't pay any money and therefore doesn't equip you to discharge other responsibilities which are good responsibilities. What about the guy who says, listen, I'm going to make as much money as I possibly can because then I might actually be able to support the kind of mission work that I'd really love to have done when I was 20. Why, why would that be bad? Oh, that would be really good. And it's fascinating. The, probably in our circles, more of the danger actually is the I'll say it, self-indulgence of my passions that is totally disconnected from economic realities. Now, I'm not going to criticise somebody who, who does well or even has a go at those things, but it's just, it's interesting that the economic prosperity we've got used to has put us in a place where we tend to indulge as possibilities things that would not be conceivable 90 years ago. If we had that conversation 90 years ago with three young people at the height of the Great Depression, right, and one guy said, well, I'm looking around to see how I can make as much wealth as possible to support my family, he'd be the hero. Correct? And rightly so. So maybe the gentle way of saying what I'm trying to say is this. Let's tip the balance back in the direction of young people particularly, thinking what is, by God's grace, given who I am, what is going to be a likely, stable, productive way for me to support myself and my family in the future? Not, you all have to go and develop blockchain software, no, right? But let's have that as a consideration for us because it was a consideration for Paul and it is probably because of our economic prosperity that we've taken for granted that we don't really need that. We may find that we actually do more good by working hard in that way in the long term as well. All right, there's lots more we could talk about, but I think we're done. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll continue in worship together. Let's pray. Merciful Father, teach us, we pray, to navigate these practical and gritty questions with wisdom and grace, with understanding of the world you've placed us in, 
and watch over us that we may not be foolish as we do so. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate pattern of the hard worker who gave himself so richly and fully for his people. We pray in his name. Amen.